Hi, I'm Philip Anthony Albertelli, and this is The Week in Doubt, episode 147. So here we go, NDEs, near-death experiences. So I haven't really broached this subject since I dared to question the NDE account of Harvard neurosurgeon and best-selling author Eben Alexander. And in fairness, I thought I was actually being pretty respectful at the time. I didn't accuse him of lying or having uh, any ulterior motives. My point was just that at the end of the day, his account is anecdotal and doesn't, as far as I can tell, amount to empirical evidence of an afterlife. And I'm already regretting bringing this up because I know rabid NDE proponents will probably jump on me with accusations of character assassination. But since doing that initial episode on Eben Alexander, I've become aware of an article in Esquire, I think it might have been dated 2013, that discusses his past, including some less than flattering episodes concerning his career as a surgeon. And this is according to Esquire, and you can easily find the article I'm referencing online, but supposedly uh, he removed a tumor from an older patient, and she was left with half of her face paralyzed. In fairness, complications can happen, but she claimed she was never warned of the possibility, and when Alexander was asked for her consent form, he only produced one sheet and claimed the page with her signature was lost. Another time, he supposedly left a piece of plastic in a woman's neck, and after moving to a different state, he was treating a patient with back trouble, a tobacco farmer, I believe, and botched the operation by fusing the wrong two vertebrae together, and then supposedly, according to Esquire, instead of telling the patient, he instead tried to alter the medical records. But whether you support Eben Alexander or you're a skeptic like myself, I urge you, in fairness, to research this stuff for yourself. As I said, the article is readily available online. But furthermore, and here's further uh, grist for the character assassination uh, accusations, uh, that same article claims that in 2003, UMass Memorial temporarily suspended his surgical privileges due to improper performance of surgery, quote-unquote. And then in 2005, he supposedly received a letter from Massachusetts Board of Registration and Medicine regarding a patient complaint. Shortly after, I believe, he ended up leaving the state. And I'm not bringing this up as a kind of bait and switch. Hey, if I can't discredit his NDE, then I'll discredit the man. That's not what I'm doing. I'm bringing this stuff up because in a case like this, where someone is claiming something as fantastical as visiting the afterlife, and all we have is anecdotal evidence. We might want to consider these personal aspects when we're trying to determine the trustworthiness of the individual. So I'm presenting these accusations as food for thought. Research the allegations for yourselves and come to your own conclusion. Is it possible that he has a spotty medical pass but still had a valid NDE? That's one possibility. But then what do we mean by a quote-unquote valid NDE? Do we mean he believes it, or he thinks it happened, or do we mean he really went to the other side? Giving him the benefit of the doubt, I think there is a chance that despite whatever might be in his past, he still may have had some kind of transformational experience. 
But I don't want to make this whole thing about Eben Alexander, so I'll move along. I do want to mention, though, that there was one thing I learned about uh, Eben Alexander from the article that I liked. Apparently, he used to like to listen to The Doors, one of my favorite bands, uh, and other classic uh, rock bands, too, in the operating room. Imagine the end playing in the background while someone's performing surgery on you. But anyway... So the reason why I waited so long to cover the topic of NDEs again is because I want to be responsible and make sure I had all my proverbial ducks in a row. When I first voiced my skepticism about NDEs, I was inundated by criticism from believers who kept repeating the same names, Sam Parnia, Gary Habermas, Raymond Moody. I kept encountering these names of high-profile NDE researchers and proponents. So I decided, hey, I'll dive headfirst down the rabbit hole and see what I can find. Oh, and I wanted to mention that while researching NDEs online, I discovered this very, shall we say, peculiar podcast. It's called Skeptico, with a K-O at the end, and I was almost going to make fun of the name because it's obviously not a real word. Then I remembered I just came up with that News Bite segment, where I spell bite with a Y, as in like a bite of computer information. Uh, then in fairness, this Brian Dunning Skeptoid, that's not a real word either. I'm being way too analytical. But anyway, uh, so it's called Skeptico, and you would think it must be a podcast geared towards skeptics. That would seem to be the logical assumption. But it's kind of like the host turns the paradigm on its head. He's skeptical of the skeptics. He gets these really big names on, like Michael Shermer, Lawrence Krauss, Steve Novella, and then proceeds to grill them to the point of it being kind of cringe-inducing. Michael Shermer did a couple of interviews with them. In his first appearance, he seems caught off guard by the way they keep asking him these weird, or shall we say, uh, in Michael Shermer's uh, vernacular, woo-woo questions. And he's finally like, wait a minute, what's going on here? It's actually not a bad podcast in the sense that it's well-produced and they really do manage to net some really big names. I looked it up on iTunes, and the show had a lot of reviews, uh, but a lot of them were negative, and in total it only had two and a half stars out of five. The major gripe people seem to have, at least according to the top complaints uh, that I happened to see, was that they found the title misleading. Someone said it should be called Credulo. Uh, made me feel even more thankful than I already am that The Week in Doubt is still sitting pretty with uh, four and a half out of uh, five stars. Although, in fairness, I probably only have a fraction of the, uh, of the reviews or listeners that uh, the host of uh, Skeptico does. And speaking of Skeptico, one of the people uh, the host interviewed was Sam Parnia, one of the big names you hear thrown about by NDE proponents. Now, Sam Parnia is an intensive care doctor specializing in cardiac arrest resuscitation. I think he's currently an assistant professor of medicine at the State University of New York at Stony Brook. He actually has an impressive resume, and he's been practicing medicine and studying NDEs for a long time. 
He's also the leader, or at least the lead investigator, for the AWARE project, which is short for Awareness During Resuscitation. Parnia appeared in a, a BBC special entitled The Day I Died, uh, along with another reputable doctor and NDE researcher named Peter Fenwick. I believe it's on YouTube if you want to check it out. The feeling I get when listening to Parnia is that he's sympathetic to NDEs, and he's also open to the possibility of consciousness existing independently of the brain. But he's still a scientist, and he's careful not to make unsubstantiated claims or to speak in absolutes about things that haven't been proven yet. Uh, you would think that the host of Skeptico would love this guy, a doctor who's devoted a great amount of time to researching the possibility of life after death. But the host actually grilled him pretty hard, too, and he uh, kind of chided him for some of his past comments. Since then, I've actually heard Alex, the host of Skeptico, refer to Parnia as a skeptic, uh, the poster child for NDE research a skeptic. Uh, but maybe there's some merit to that because the host confronts Parnia with his own words in which he does admit to being somewhat skeptical about NDEs. I'll uh, play that now. But then later on in that same presentation, you say, if near-death experience is an illusion, a trick of the mind, which it may well be, and I suspect it will turn out to be. So, there you're saying that after looking at all these cases, collaborating with other indie researchers, that your current position is that you suspect, your hunch is, that these NDE cases are probably an illusion. Now, that's not a problem. That's not a criticism. It's just I'm trying to understand that is where you're coming from, right? No. The current scientific models that we have, okay, and this is the point I think I was trying to mention in that uh, quote that you said. The current scientific models that we have do not um, allow for the descriptions that patients are providing of uh, an out-of-body experience if they're real. It's okay to say, you know, I've done all this research and I'm leaning towards suspecting that that's how it's going to turn out to be. I mean, what's the problem with that? I don't think there is a problem. Okay. You do suspect that it'll turn out to be a trick of the mind, an illusion. It may well be. I'm, you know, you're pushing me and I'm giving you an honest answer. I don't know. If I knew the answers, then I don't think I would have engaged 10, 12 years of my life and so much of my medical and scientific reputation to try to do this. As you appreciate, people like me I risk a lot by doing... So there's Dr. Sam Parnia, the guy who many NDE proponents tell me to look up, saying he wouldn't be surprised if it was a trick of the brain or mind. But in fairness, as I said, I've also heard Parnia speaking in a very sympathetic way about the idea of mind being separate from body. So I don't know what to tell you on that score. And full disclosure, uh, regular listeners already know this, but being a skeptic, I tend to lean heavily in favor of uh, the consciousness as an emergent property of the brain argument. Uh, but in fairness, let me play a couple of clips of Parnia speaking as more of a proponent for the validity of NDEs. And I think this was from a 2013 panel discussion. Now, interestingly, to go to your question of consciousness, what we have is that we have many thousands, if not millions of people now, who are reporting these incredible experiences from all over the world, who, many of whom have described our doctors, our nurses, conversations of what was going on. But you cannot have a functioning cortex in this time. It's not possible. So we're left with a paradox. 
So this led us to put together a more definitive study, um, which we call AWARE, Awareness During Resuscitation, to try to iron out some of these issues. And part of that was to try to study the quality of oxygen getting into the brain and hopefully improve outcomes for our patients so they don't end up brain damaged. And part of it was also to try to study these recollections that people have. Now, um, our study has been analyzed, and we will be uh, releasing the results soon. But I can just give a little snippet, if I may, just because everyone asks us. And what we, what we have found, and this is not just my interpretation, these are experts. We have at least 20 experts from neurology to psychiatry to various fields in neuroscience to emergency medicine who have conferred the findings that essentially uh, our data suggests that these so-called out-of-body experiences, uh, at least when they occur in the cardiac arrest setting, which is why I call them visual awareness, cannot be defined as a hallucination. They cannot be defined as a hallucination. They are not consistent with what we call a hallucination. Furthermore, what we've also managed to demonstrate is that essentially when a person has died, technically the way they're defined dead, um, that what happens to our consciousness is that it disappears from the external view. So a bit like how you go for surgery and you're given a general anesthetic and you may appear that your consciousness is not there, it hasn't disappeared off the face of the earth. It's just not present. And so essentially death is not something to be afraid of. So actually that was one clip, not two. And uh, I think I left out a part that sounded pretty impressive on face value where he makes a claim about being able to time, at least in one instance, uh, an NDE to a moment when the patient's brain should have been offline. Now, this is during that study he mentioned. But now I'll read a little bit about the results of the AWARE project that were released afterwards. As part of the AWARE study, Parnia and colleagues have investigated out-of-body claims by using hidden targets placed on shelves that could only be seen from above. Parnia has written, and here it is in quotes, if no one sees the pictures, it shows these experiences are illusions or false memories. Parnia issued a statement indicating that the first phase of the project has been completed and the results are undergoing peer review for publication in a medical journal. No subject saw the images mounted out of sight according to Parnia's early report of the results of the study at an American Heart Association meeting in November 2013. Only two of the 152 patients reported any visual experiences, and one of them described events that could be verified. On October 6, 2014, the results of the study were published in the journal Resuscitation. Among those who reported a perception of awareness and completed further interviews, 46% experienced a broad range of mental recollections in relation to death that were not compatible with the commonly used term of NDEs. These included fearful or persecutory experiences, only 9% had experiences compatible with NDEs, and 2% exhibited full awareness compatible with OBEs, out-of-body experiences, with explicit recall of seeing and hearing events. One case was validated in time using auditory stimuli during cardiac arrest. According to Caroline Watt, the one verifiable period of conscious awareness that Parnia was able to report did not relate to this objective test. Rather, it was a patient giving a supposedly accurate report of events during his resuscitation. He didn't identify the pictures. He described the defibrillator machine noise, but that's not very impressive since many people know what goes on in an emergency room setting from seeing recreations on television. And just to give you some context or reference, uh, Caroline Watt, 
who the article mentions there, is a Scottish-born psychologist and parapsychologist. The failure of test subjects to see the hidden target cards reminds me of a similar study with a similar result conducted by Dr. Penny Satori. Uh, I like Penny Satori. Uh, I watched some videos of her recently, and she seems like a genuinely intelligent, sensitive, good-natured person. She started off as a nurse, and an emotional experience she had with a dying patient led her to want to study NDEs, and eventually she became a doctor. She was giving a talk, and she was very honest when reporting her results using hidden target cards. And I'll play that clip now. And I also tried to um, monitor the out-of-body experience as well and see if we could um, verify if this was correct. So what I did is hid symbols around the intensive care unit on the top of the monitors of each cardiac, uh, each cardiac monitor at the side of the patient. They were above head height and the only way you could see them was if you'd left your body. And unfortunately, although there were eight cases of out-of-body experiences, no one actually saw the symbols. And that was a lot of hard work because I had to damp dust them every week as well. So um, I didn't get any success with that. And just so people don't think I'm taking her out of context or being unfair to her, she does claim to have had better results with different methods. So if you're interested in what else uh, Dr. Penny Satori has to uh, say, uh, feel free to look her up. I believe there's uh, plenty of YouTube videos of her out there and uh, plenty of uh, articles about her online. So, And before I get too far in, uh, it's probably too late for that, I should pause to mention that a doctor by the name of Raymond Moody actually coined the term near-death experience back in the 70s, I believe, and he's actually now kind of allied himself with Eben Alexander. And recently I watched a debate where the two of them went head-to-head -head with two skeptics, one of which was uh, Steve Novella, himself a doctor and the host of the popular... Uh, podcast, A Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Now, another big name in NDE research is Gary Habermas. He's a professor of apologetics and philosophy at Liberty University. And Liberty University, uh, a lot of you probably already know, was founded by the late and uh, somewhat controversial Reverend uh, Jerry Farwell, so just to keep that in context, I guess. You can find videos of Habermas online giving talks where he discusses a number of NDE accounts. He tells one story that you might recognize. It involves a woman named Maria, no last name apparently. She has an NDE and recounts seeing a tennis shoe or sneaker on the ledge or the roof of a hospital. I've encountered at least two different versions. A pro-Christian documentary on NDEs I watched dramatically tells how her soul went up through the top of the hospital where she noticed a shoe on the roof. Habermas's version seems to say it was on a ledge where a nurse found it uh, later and supposedly confirmed that it was the same sneaker that Maria saw. Anyone else not too impressed? Another one I've heard him repeatedly tell is the story of Katie, 
a little girl who experienced an NDE. Supposedly, she left her body, and even though her corporeal form was at the hospital, she was able to see what her family was doing at their house, at least a mile away or more. Supposedly, she was even able to see what her mother was making for supper. Roast chicken and rice, by the way. Sounds good. Poor chickens. Uh, and supposedly, all this was corroborated by her doctor afterwards. It was kind of funny. Habermas and a skeptic named Keith Augustine were debating on a show that was perhaps sympathetic to Habermas's side. Nevertheless, though, one of the hosts, without missing a beat, said, My first thought is why was the woman home cooking while her daughter was dying in the hospital? Habermas claims at that point the mother was supposedly unaware of what had happened to her child. Let's see. So another big name in the field is Bruce Grayson. Almost sounds like... Uh, the alter ego of a superhero or something, the uh, mild-mannered Bruce Grayson. Uh, he's a professor of psychiatry and neural behavioral science at the University of Virginia. He also happens to be a student, a protege of Raymond Moody, and kind of uh, carries his torch in a sense. He developed something that's famously come to be known as the Grayson Scale a tool used in recording NDE experiences. It's basically a questionnaire that looks for points of commonality between uh, NDE experiences. Now, here's another guy that seems very likable, very learned, and, and intelligent, but still there's some alarm bells. One thing that kind of stopped me in my tracks was something he said in a lecture or a talk I was watching. He was very charming and coherent. I was surprisingly agreeing with a lot of what he said. And then he told a story he had heard about a young college-aged woman who had been an honors student and was uh, getting ready to go off to college, I believe. She got into a car accident, and while at the hospital, they supposedly x-rayed her head and discovered that all she had was a brain stem surrounded by fluid. And the point he was trying to make was that consciousness isn't or may not be dependent on the brain. So I'm thinking, really, just a brain stem, which is basically the equivalent of the primitive reptilian brain, basically just autonomic functions, no higher reasoning, etc. And she was walking and talking and an honor roll student on top of it. I was definitely incredulous. I tried to hunt down the story online and had a lot of trouble finding it. The closest I came was stumbling across a bunch of similar stories about uh, people, usually uh, young males, I think, who were hydrocephalic, people who had brain abnormalities and whose heads were filled with cerebral fluid, uh, but nevertheless had at least normal intelligence. A common thread in many of these cases seemed to be that, although the fluid made it appear as if most of the brain was missing, it was actually the case that the tissue was just oddly distributed along the walls of the skull, basically uh, displaced by fluid but seemingly operational. And I'm thinking, this is a man who's both a psychiatrist and studies neuroscience. Shouldn't he be aware of this? You know, what's going on? I think in the same talk, he mentioned the phenomenon of people suffering from dementia or other degenerative brain illnesses uh, having moments of clarity shortly before their deaths. And according to Grayson, it was as if the deteriorating or dying brain was losing its grasp and the consciousness was now free to express itself. And I'm thinking, wait, but still, 
how is this liberated consciousness now using this defective brain or physical form to communicate when it couldn't a moment ago or for all the time that the body was suffering with this degenerative illness? The theory, although seductive on the surface, seems flawed when you apply reason to it. It's not like the person communicated in spirit form. They were still communicating through the same defective body that for some reason it couldn't use before. If it's not using the complex machinery of the brain, how is it puppeteering its dying body? And if consciousness can use a body without a brain, why do we need brains at all? A lot of questions. There's another story that both Habermas and Grayson tell that you may be familiar with. It's a little harder to explain away. I forget the woman's last name, but I believe her first name is Pam. She had a bad aneurysm deep in her brain, not like there's such a thing as a good aneurysm, uh, deep in her brain that made it really tough to operate on. But if it burst, it could kill her, so they had to do something. So they used this really extreme medical procedure where they chilled her body drained her body of blood and slowed her brain's metabolism with a very large dose of phenobarbital in an attempt to keep her brain from dying during the surgery. So supposedly, it was as close to dead as you can get without actually being dead. And uh, supposedly, she had an NDE. And even though she was in this death-like, almost cryogenic state, she was able to report details about her own surgery that she shouldn't have known. For instance, she was supposedly able to describe this strange-looking drill that almost looked like an electric toothbrush that the doctors, so the story goes, didn't remove from its case till after she was out. And this isn't like the Maria Sneaker story that seems almost apocryphal. You can find interviews online with this lady and her doctors. So there are some spooky stories out there that seemingly can't be fully explained away. But being a skeptic, I tend to still lean towards the idea that there probably is some more mundane explanation. There was another interesting thing I noted. Uh, one big talking point that you hear repeated by NDE proponents is that people only see dead loved ones in the afterlife. And this is... Um, I guess, them trying to lend credence to uh, the supposed validity of NDEs. But contrary to that, I've heard a number of NDE researchers, um, and, and in fairness to their credit, some who happen to be believers uh, also, uh, say that children, for some reason, tend to often report seeing living relatives in the afterlife, as well as mythical figures like Santa Claus. And that reminds me of another, uh, I guess, kind of cultural uh, aspect to all this, that, you know, obviously people in the Christian West often tend to see uh, Jesus or angels and things like, like that. But people in India, and India is another place where there's a very large amount of uh, near-death experience reports People aren't seeing Christian imagery. They're seeing traditional kind of Hindu imagery where there's this kind of lord of death who has a book, you know, and uh, looks over um, 
all your deeds, etc. And these, uh, according to Peter, according to Peter Fenwick, he sends out these strange beings known as Yamduts who uh, go out and bring souls to him. And so it's this completely different imagery. And, and you would think if these experiences are universal and there really is the same afterlife that we all go to, why are people? Uh, seeing different things and why do people's experiences seem to be colored by culture and uh, indigenous belief or whatever. Does every religion get its own afterlife? <laughs> More food for thought. Blind people having NDEs is another spooky phenomenon that proponents often bring up. Supposedly, there's numerous accounts of blind people, blind uh, since birth, being able to see during their near-death experiences. Maybe I'm missing something, but the first thing that occurred to me is, well, is it really that remarkable? They're seeing with their mind's eye, not their physical eye or eyes. So... Couldn't this still be chalked up to imagination or hallucinatory phenomena? Uh, I guess to answer that, we'd have to know what the inner life of a blind person is like and what they're able to or not able to imagine or envision inside the dark world of their mind's eye. I mean, it's intriguing, but I'm still not sold. And I should stop to say that I do believe in NDEs in the sense that I think they're real, transformational, life-changing experiences. The question on the table is, do they originate from outside or inside the brain? Are they a spiritual or brain-based phenomenon? I think one of the keys to figuring out if these things are products of the dying brain or actual trips to the afterlife depends on trying to nail down when during the dying process these things are happening. And this applies to the case of Eben Alexander, too. Did the NDE occur as he claims, or he believes, at a point when his brain shouldn't have been capable of producing it? Or did it occur while slipping out of or back into consciousness, when some higher brain activity would have still been online, so to speak? It reminds me of something rather ingenious I read in a comment thread on YouTube. And it's kind of in keeping with the spirit of the hidden card test. The person suggested putting a simple, inexpensive digital clock up on a shelf. That way, if a person sees it while out of body, uh, we'll know exactly when during the process that the NDE took place. One person who had an NDE, a female doctor actually, said she didn't believe in the card test because the NDE is so powerful and overwhelming, you wouldn't care about the cards. But... You can't have your cake and eat it, too. One of the main forms of proof bandied about by proponents is the detailed recounting by NDEers of their surroundings while out of body, including minutia like what the instruments looked like, footwear on ledges, and uh, even idiosyncratic arm motions of uh, medical staff. But a final word on the mind-body problem regarding consciousness. As I said, I tend to be in the camp that consciousness is an emergent property of the brain. We know there's a direct correlation between brain and consciousness, or brain itself. There's parts of the brain responsible for a wide array of functions, facial recognition, impulse control, language, memory, etc. Damage a part of the brain, and you may also damage the corresponding function or aspect of the self. The ability to recognize 
recognize faces or remember certain events, the ability to control emotional impulses. And we know if you get a degenerative illness like Alzheimer's, it's not just the brain that degrades, but the personality as well. So consciousness of the self seems to be inextricably linked to this complex manifold organ we call the brain. To play devil's advocate, the only work around I can think of, and this is what many NDE proponents conjecture, is that the brain doesn't produce consciousness, but rather it's like a conduit or receiver, um, kind of similar to what Huxley talks about in The Doors of Perception. And thusly, consciousness doesn't cease with the death of the brain. It simply becomes liberated from its container. But this, as far as I can tell, still boils down to speculation and conjecture, and yes, wish thinking. I think we're still a long way from being able to uh, scientifically say consciousness can exist independently of the brain. The mainstream scientific consensus, as far as I can tell, is the exact opposite. And I know people are sick of hearing it, and it sounds cliche, but as Sagan said, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. But I don't know how much more I can say about this topic. Uh, I've been wanting to talk about this for a long time, and now I guess I have. Um, a brief correction to make uh, before I let you go, and this involves um, my commentary on the Shroud of Turin. The only mistake I think I made is when I was discussing something known as the Mandillion. I was talking about how people try to place the shroud further back in the historical record by kind of conflating it with other miraculous cloths, such as the Mandillion. Uh, and I described it as a rectangular kind of cloth with a oval opening through which you could see a face. And the theory is that it was actually, the, this is what believers think, it was the Shroud of Turin folded up with the face visible. But actually, after reviewing the facts and looking at the artwork, it seems more to be the case that the Mandillion was uh, represented as a square rectangular cloth, but the face usually wasn't looking out through an opening. It was almost like the, the face was you know, sitting on the uh, cloth, and it's, it's kind of almost reminiscent of Veronica's veil. You know, the uh, the kind of the, the cloth that was used to wipe the face of, um, of, of Jesus, supposedly, and with uh, the image of his face being left imprinted on it. You know, so the idea of an opening through which the face of the Mandillion could be seen, I think, has more to do with uh, shroud theory and trying to identify the shroud with the Mandillion. But I think there are images of the Mandillion where it seems to be in kind of a, a decorative display where there is an opening uh, for uh, um, the, the face, perhaps. perhaps. But anyway, I was just trying to keep it real, so I wanted to uh, try to clarify that. And you guys know the usual drill. Uh, if you want to support the show, I would even consider it a big help if you simply follow the show on Twitter or gave the show a like on Facebook. Uh, you can also listen on Stitcher. You can subscribe to the show or rate it through iTunes. You can check out the archives at Podbean. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N. Go to Podbean and look for Pal Bertelli <laughs> or, or look for The Week in Doubt. 
And if you want to donate monetarily to the show as little as 99 cents, you can scroll down to the bottom of the Podbean page and use the PayPal widget. There's all that alliteration again. You can also support the show through Patreon. Go to Patreon and look for either uh, Phil Albertelli or The Week in Doubt. And uh, I think that's it for now. Thanks for listening.